No mai haere mai, and welcome to this very special episode of the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason, and on today's episode, honoring those who have served our country, Executive Director Tim Wilson talks to Dr. Rowan Light about his recently released book, Anzac Nations, The Legacy of Gallipoli in New Zealand and Australia, from 1965 to 2015. On this podcast, Rowan examines the myth-making around Anzac and how commemoration has evolved over the years. He reflects on his own experience of Anzac growing up and of being at the Anzac Centenary in 2015. He then offers some thoughts on how we might see changes to the celebration of Anzac Day in the future. We hope that you enjoy this very special episode honoring the sacrifice of those who have served our nation. Kia ora, Rowan. Great to be with you and talk with you. Anzac Nations, the legacy of Gallipoli in New Zealand and Australia, 1965-2015. It's a book about Anzac. It's a significant and weighty but also fascinating tome. Why did you write it? So I suppose the book springs from a few, couple of really key questions that were quite personal for me. And I suppose which are really about why do societies remember and commemorate certain parts of their past, certain aspects of their past? And why do those, yeah, and share stories um, mm. about the past and why are these so important and, and sort of vital for cultures? And so what I do in the book is is exactly is, is explore those big questions in relation to Anzac and I suppose asking, well, why has Anzac become our... Uh, such a prominent, why does it hold such a prominent place in our national calendar? Um, how has it changed and what does that tell us about, yeah, this question of this deep sort of need that societies have for the past? In 2015, we marked the centenary of, of the Gallipoli landing and we invested as a society a lot of money, a lot of emotion in this moment the interesting thing is that as the as I start off in in the book mm. is that 50 years ago public attitudes to Anzac were quite different markedly different for many public leaders politicians and uh, and, and and community leaders the the expectation around Anzac Day was that it would not necessarily continue to exist beyond the last the the the, the needs of the of the returned servicemen who had mm. served in, in the at places like Gallipoli in the First World War. So when the last serviceman who had been at Gallipoli passed away, we would all forget about Anzac Day and that would be just another episode in history. Is that, uh, is, is that what the thinking was in 1965? Yeah, there was certainly, certainly many uh, that was an expectation and certainly I think they would not have imagined that Anzac Day might have been could be transformed into this a national kind of national commemoration that we we think of it today in terms of uh, you know the sort of sense of public ownership that we have over Anzac and the sense that we the sort of expectations that we have of Anzac Day now if we think about you know the place of Gallipoli you know and the pilgrimage the pilgrimage to Gallipoli that young people um, as well as other Australians and New Zealanders um, sort of undertake. Yeah, no, you've hit on something there, which is the the, the young people uh, have been increasingly, I think, drawn into the Anzac narrative that is being presented. Is is that fair? And if so, why do you think that is? 
It's so the the shift in uh, sort of public ownership and the kind of focus of ANZAC commemoration as one in which we, the New Zealand public, are not simply participants, become almost the object of the the commemoration, and that we are called to remember. Mm. We are sort of demand out. It is our attention and our our sort of sense of. Um, yeah, our participation is, is what is required. Mm. The, 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 the powerful sort of moral command, you know, lest we forget, you know, do not forget, you remember. Mm. We shall direct, remember them. We shall remember is directed at us mm. in a way and, and potentially particularly to young people as the kind of those who who will kind of carry carry the torch. That's, that's, that's a big difference to how Anzac Day was celebrated or commemorated in its first fifty years, where it was much more of a focus on the on a on a on the on an image of of citizenship through military service, mm. and the image of that we see in our monuments, uh, our First World War monuments, are of the citizen soldier, the soldier who who went to war, who paid the the dues of of citizenship and returns triumphant. That. I think in the last 50 years has changed um, in ways that depict the, those Anzacs who fought at Gallipoli as more less akin to kind of military warriors mm. triumphing over enemies uh, and much more as victims, as, as, as sacrificial lambs maybe, mm. who then uh, are... Like us, that that we even the way we depict the Anzacs is much more of of sort of fresh faced youths um, rather than men necessarily mm. who who made perhaps conscious decisions to, to go to war for for different reasons. Now, the, how where do we see that's changed is, is something like film. So uh, uh, something I explore in the book is is the way that film representations change in the nineteen eighties, mm. and that's an interesting. Can you give me an example of yeah, one so, film in particular? Is there a moment in a film that encapsulates the kind of reimagining of uh, Anzac soldiers as th- that you've described? Yeah, so the, the classic Anzac film, the modern Anzac film is, is Gallipoli, um, by Peter, produced by and, and directed by Peter Weir. Mm. And where's Gallipoli kind of yeah exemplifies this shift and really in, in, a, in, in an important kind of cultural moment recreates the Anzacs not just for Australians it was a, it's it's called the Australian film mm. but it also shaped New Zealand audiences in really interesting ways was there a is there a scene that encapsulates um, that uh, reconfiguration that you uh, you're, you're describing in your book yes well it's really more the tone of the film Okay. Um, but there are certainly some very powerful scenes. Give me so, a scene. Uh, the most powerful scene is, is is the last scene. It's the climax of the film. It's the it's the scene that you knew was coming, which is the the death of Archie Hamilton, the the the, the blonde blonde haired blue eyed um, Anzac, who who really embodies this reconfiguration, as you say, of Anzac as 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 an embodiment of of nationhood, as an embodiment of us. And in this moment, he's riddled with as he's riddled with machine gun fire from from, from in, a, in a hopeless attack on the Turkish line. 
We are meant to see ourselves and the nation as as a victim, as ultimately a victim of of British of the British Empire. So mm. that's that's really the which isn't. There's some sort of setup of this scene, which is is that of of British incompetence, of military incompetence. Yeah, British incompetence, British indifference, and us as passive executors of another will. Yeah, and so when we st- if we take that. Uh, as as a scene in a film uh, in the 1980s is is a very is a very, is a is, is telling a very particular story mm. and and this goes back to this question of well, why do societies remember certain tell certain stories why do they retell certain stories the fact that this film is 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 is, is very appealing in the 1980s mm. tells us a lot about how New Zealand and Australian society is changing mm. as a con- consequence of what are huge cultural shifts with yeah. the with the end of the British Empire? Mm. So something I set up at the start of the book is really that that story, which was really a story we're still very much part of, even in in twenty twenty two, which is the way that British the British Empire had defined New Zealand culture in many ways, and the end of the, the end of that that slow end of the British Empire produced mm. some profound crises which were political, economic, but also cultural, and therefore needed new stories, new scripts to kind of provide some kind of, to make sense of that experience. Mm. And Anzac uh, is, is one that I think um, has been kind of fixed on. I want to talk uh, just uh, personally uh, about your interest in remembrance and the way that societies make meaning out of events. Why are you, Rowan Light, so interested in this? Does it go back to any any experience you had as a young, a uh, young boy growing up? Was did you have an experience of Anzac Day that uh, that was particularly memorable? In some ways, Anzac was actually quite well. I think it was part of the texture of my childhood, and like it, w- it would be for many New Zealanders, just part of the kind of fabric of of the sort of rhythm of of growing up in that for example you might have oh well, you know i had a great grandfather who served at gallipoli in the somme so we had family medals that came out at anzac day and that's for school marches we would if you were old enough you got to wear them and i went to a catholic school so that was woven into uh, the rhythms of of remembering the dead as catholics so there were some very natural ways that it fit into our lives but it was really quite, I think, quite peripheral in many ways. And I, and strangely enough, quite peripheral to actually how I got to this project. And really what brought me to Anzac was actually much more uh, an experience of realising as I studied history at New Zealand history at the university was that there are multiple histories that we have in New Zealand. And this is something that, yeah, we've as we've talked about, is so alive today. We've just had the new history curriculum introduced into schools and the whole emphasis on that is trying to bring out this idea that there have been histories which we've downplayed or that we haven't had part of our public knowledge such as I don't know the New Zealand wars for example and um, it's the idea of bringing these back into kind of a public focus and I remember studying and kind of real and sort of appreciating that much more as a university student. So it crystallized at university as you were studying history? Yeah, and what it sent me on was a bit of a, a spiraling kind of personal quest, <laughs> a crisis, a, a sort of an intellectual crisis of actually, well, what does 
what does it mean to, to remember certain aspects of our past? And what, what does that need? What does that need tell us? And also, how do we, moving forward, how do we sort of decide well, what, which aspects of our past do we highlight? And that is something that, that I do, we will get to as well as what is the future of Anzac Day. We will get there. I'm interested as well in hearing a bit about the research uh, that you went through to write the book. Did you go to Gallipoli? What was that experience like? How does it end up on the pages? The awesome things about doing a topic like this, which has that amazing kind of public cachet, and it's a, because it's about you know shifts in public participation in Anzac, is that everyone has a story. Everyone has an opinion about mm. about Anzac and 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 the changes in Anzac. And so I talked to to people of certain generations and they'd say oh yeah this is we've seen this change we've of course and in some ways it's probably the first time that actually stopped and thought about it mm. and gone oh yeah you're right actually we didn't attend anzac day like we do now or if we did it was with a very different tone mm. we didn't expect we never expected the prime minister to deliver a speech on anzac day um now we that would have been that would have been unthinkable yeah well in literally 1965 I mean, literally, Helen Clark becomes the first New Zealand Prime Minister to attend their dawn service at, at Gallipoli in 2005. So sh- that's that's not that long ago. So we're mm. talking about some really recent shifts. So before, so in 1990, as I as a sort of part of the book, which compares the Australian commemoration at Gallipoli, which is it's the fir- which is the first time the Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Hmm. attends the dawn service at Gallipoli, um, a very important kind of political moment in which the, sh- the, the tides of Anzac are shifting hmm. and the political appeal and political rhetoric of Anzac starts to shift. The The New Zealand Prime Minister is not attending. The The Governor-General, the Governor-General attends, Paul Reeves, and that's because it's seen as much more the appropriate role of a Governor-General to play the part of kind of high priest in a mm. way in this sacred moment. Now I think we that's blurred and we actually expect our prime ministers to take on much more of a a sort of a role as one of an Australian historian put it, the interpreter of the nation. So mm. we expect the prime minister to give a, a speech which is rhetorical and is, 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 is speaks it's, to it's, our heart. For many, taking part in a local dawn parade or Anzac Day service is an important tradition that spans generations. Part of our heritage, it acknowledges and honours those who served our country and sacrificed their all. Things are different this year. It's meaningful, uh, yes. conveys the emotions that we are experiencing, possibly about this particular this particular commemoration it's, it's fascinating because it suggests that our notion of what leadership is is also changing so the changes in narrative uh, around Anzac Day are responses to our changes in understanding what our political system might or might not deliver to us on some very very differentiated levels so it's not purely about politics anymore it's about you know that quote unquote high priest role Yes, and that's a shift that I identified quite strongly in the book, which is that commemoration, our commemoration of Gallipoli has been is much more defined by the state mm. in a way that it was defined by a broader kind of civil society in 1965. And I think that tells us a lot about 
at the shift changes in our society and how in many ways yeah the the the, the kind of blurring mm. of of different sources of kind of authority that we've had in our society where many many of which have sort of fallen away or kind of end uh, kind of have big question marks over and so the state in some ways becomes more and more fundamental to defining the relationships between citizens as if, if i can complete the thought i don't know if i'm correct but as civil society erodes yeah i mean i think we've yeah we've seen huge shifts in our in civil society um since the 1960s uh, and part of that is going back to that other thread that i was drawing out was the sh- were, were changing global contexts mm. so the the fact that the british empire had been such an important kind of cultural sort of glue for understanding citizenship in Aotearoa and in Australia. So, you know, for example, in the that period from the 1970s, 1980s, we see the introduction of national currency, so the move away from a pound, a shared British currency. Mm. Uh, we have citizen, we have our passports, we have New Zealand passports being introduced. Mm. These came out of necessity because that old, an old British world where membership of a, of a british world had kind of defined who we were who we were and how we traveled in the mm. world mm. are no longer they're no longer working well we're they're, decoupling we're decoupling from them yeah they're, they're starting to deteriorate i want to get uh i do want to talk about the future of anzac day we'll do that next but i'm really curious about your your personal experience of gallipoli and and what changed in your understanding of it being there at commemorations being in that geography um engaging with it what was that like gallipoli is interesting because it's 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 you know it's it's over there it's a um it has that kind of distance one of the highlights of doing the research for this book was going to gallipoli for the 2015 centenary so there was the the lottery so there were 10,000 australian new zealand citizens with the prime ministers and official dignitaries of, of various countries. Did you win the lottery? Well, I had a friend, actually. Mm. A friend, so I was the plus one huh. friend yeah. um, who knew I was doing this research and said, well, you've got to come. So I had this really incredible experience. Um, if you catch the bus from Istanbul and, and head south, you, you come to the Dardanelles. And the Dardanelles is like a... I mean, it's a it's a place with lots of layers of mythology. You know, it's the... It's the, um, it's the long thought... It's the place of of the uh, of Troy, um, so you know it's a oh, the long thought location of Troy. Yeah, yeah, okay. yes. So if we think about Homer's Troy and the kind of and, and yeah, deep, long, deep roots of, of mythology in this place. But anyway, place that's that launched a thousand ships, exactly. And um, but you go there, and it was it was a um, it was a long journey because of all the security. There were a lot of security concerns, um, so there were lots of stops. And lots of standing in lines and getting your check, your pass checked, which was really interesting because it basically meant you got to have lots of conversations with all sorts of people. So Australians and New Zealanders from some who were expats living in London and in Geneva, um, people who'd come from Tokoroa mm. and um, Timaru and brought with them you know, invariably the, f- the family medals yeah. that they were bringing back in a way that or they, they saw as a kind of a very personal kind of family pilgrimage that mm. they were connecting with. Their personal tikanga. Yeah, they were, and they were, exactly, they were, they were 
connecting to loved ones who had had whether and this is the interesting thing many didn't necessarily have a direct uh, ancestor kind of soldier who fought at Gallipoli they maybe they were second world war veterans maybe they fought on the western front but Gallipoli was the was a was a framework in which they could have those stories recognized which tells it again is a powerful shift that we've seen in Anzac so we've seen this kind of interesting story where Anzac has become broader it's been able to encompass nationhood it's become and our national experiences but it's also come become narrower in the sense that we now kind of hold as synonyms really Anzac and Gallipoli and the First World War and that was exemplified I think in the Te Papa Gallipoli exhibition which has was running over the centenary period and still running it's running till now 2025 tells us a lot about the success and the appeal of that exhibition I don't know if you went to it Tim but it's called Gallipoli the scale of our war so the mm. ho- the, the the in a sense the the entirety of our war experience is compacted is, into Gallipoli yes and, and the fact that it did that in a way that was sufficient or seemed they pulled it off and it was it's been hugely successful tells us a little bit about there's something here which is goes beyond okay so you've You've blueprinted how that's happened between 1965-2015. What does the future of ANZAC look like as you understand it? I know this is speculative. We don't know the future. But given what you've learned, what do you expect? Yes, well, historians, we are creatures of, of the past. We inhabit the try to inhabit the past. We're not the best at making predictions for the future. One thing that I think readers will get from the book is how often people have miscalled the future of Anzac, um, which is quite fun in, in a way because it shows you how... Well, it's great fun as, as a historian because you get to say, well, look how silly they were. That's this right. Is, and um, <laughs> I would never make such an egregious error, but I'm going to ask you to do it on this podcast. <laughs> I'll make... I will, and short, shortly I'll make all sorts of silly predictions for future historians to laugh at. I think that shows the con- like the contingency in a way, the contingency of... of our, our circumstances that we, we have to make decisions about how things arise in front of us and, and um, so I think well one I think a lot about how the disruption in Anzac so one one thing that we've seen we had this crescendo this crescendo of commemoration with mm. in 2015 huge unprecedented public financial investment in this commemoration after that a complete sort of dive of interest in Gallipoli so in terms of the numbers who went to Gallipoli itself there was a kind of fatigue I think a public Mm. fatigue in the sense okay we've had this big moment you know and now we'll kind of and now we'll kind of move on so that 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 decline is really interesting because I think it tells us about how these kind of commemorative anniversaries take on a sort of super importance and that's something that explored in the book whether it's the 75th anniversary of Gallipoli or the 90th and Mm. and then the 100th so we've seen so we've seen this interesting kind of drop off. We've also had the disruption by through COVID. So we had the in the last two years Anzac Day essentially cancelled as a public as a public event. Mm. So the, these are questions as to what will happen now once as we open back up as people will the will how will this have affected Anzac? Um, the other the other interesting shift I think we'll see. Is so. So the first chapter in the book explores how the kind of crisis of Anzac Day in the 1960s is the decline 
and death of the the First World War generation. Mm. And that's really what produces the first crisis in meaning because they had, these are the men, the old men who had, had given the, they were embodied, they embodied what Anzac Day was about. So when they die or retire from public life, you have to come up with a new what meaning. What the hell does it mean? You have to yeah. find a new meaning or you put it on the shelf and say, well, that was that. We're seeing something a little bit similar in with the second world generation, war generation now. So I think families are now turning, they're starting, we're having the death of the last of the, of the second world war generation. So the question I think is, will we see... Um, will the will we see a greater attention to the Second World War? I think what we'll probably see is that interest in the Second World War will spike as we hit some of the big uh, anniversaries. Mm. So anniversaries create the kind of natural kind of reference points that governments can invest in. Can you know a commemoration around a certain event? There's interesting questions about why do governments see what is the appeal and why is there a an assumption that a government would invest in kind of cultural infrastructure like that. Um, I would suggest, as we've already talked about, that there's that suggests a shift in that way the state kind of is expected to define our relationships now. And then the thing that we always have to ask, I think, is if commemoration and how we remember the past is about fulfilling the needs of the present, then that's what will always help us answer that question what's the future of Anzac it'll depend on the needs the needs of the present and our needs and um, we'll see what those how those pan out and what you're saying is we need to seize this opportunity to determine what the future of Anzac looks like in the sense that we discuss what our needs are at least have a conversation about it uh, and that will shape what Anzac looks like in 20 years I think that's part of absolutely part of us and, and I want readers to walk away from this book having having read it uh that and and saying okay this is this is these are stories these are these are practices that make claims on on myself as a new zealand citizen as an australian citizen i should be more reflective and actually on on who's making these claims and why um but and and equally yeah if i want to if i want to have a stake in in one way or the other then i have to particularly in this post-COVID world, as we look to get back together with each other off Zoom and into each other's lives in an embodied way and in a, in a, in back into each other's faces, that we, we, that we see <clears throat> practices like Anzac as, as opportunities to do that, to make claims. Yeah, what is the future? What, how do we want it? What do we want it to look like? Um, whether you hate, love it or hate it, you know, you can, you've got to, if you put yourself out there, make it, stake a claim. Rowan Light, thank you very much. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. <laughs>